0: You're listening to RTNT, Radio Totally
1: Normal, Toronto.
2: My mental illness allows me to be more compassionate.
3: I don't let it stop me from what I have to do in life.
2: My mental health helps me relate to other people.
1: I'm not afraid of it
0: anymore.
3: I'm at peace with my mental illness.
0: Mental
4: illness saved my life. It gives me a new outlook on life.
2: Hello, and welcome to Radio Totally Normal Toronto, a podcast that provides a voice for community mental health. I'm Yael.
1: And I'm Nat. Thanks for tuning in. If this is your first time, RTT is a podcast about mental health produced by the members and staff of Progress Place, a mental health recovery center in Toronto. This episode is a big one, bigger than we thought it was going to be when we started working on it, to be honest. But it is also an important one, not only because the topic is so important, but also because it's something that is moving and shaking quite a lot these days.
2: So, what the heck are we talking about? Give us a hint, Nat.
1: The bacon, the Benjamins, the green, money, and mental health.
2: Money plays a part in everyone's life. I think we can probably all agree on that. Living with a mental illness does not make money less of a big deal. In fact, money is often a massive concern and a complicated one. So we are going to dive into this tricky subject today.
1: It's so tricky that we have quite a preamble for you before we get to our awesome guests, and you will be hearing from us more than in our previous episodes.
2: Okay, so if you are part of the mental health community here in Toronto, chances are that when you hear money and mental health, you probably think ODSP and OW. ODSP is the Ontario Disability Support Program, and OW is the Ontario Works. If you are listening from somewhere outside of Ontario, we would be interested to learn about how our social assistance programs are different or similar to yours. Drop us a line at rtnt at progressplace.org.
1: ODSP is where our discussion starts today, but it isn't everything. Yes, there is going to be a great show for people receiving ODSP benefits. And if you are thinking of applying for ODSP benefits, we have a little something for you as well but really we think this show is going to be an eye-opener for everyone hopefully we will leave you reflecting on how you think about money and health.
2: Now one last thing we aren't going to talk about employment even though that's a topic that is very close to money it's a huge and intricate subject in its own right and this is also not an episode about blame either Our goal is to build empathy and understanding for all the members of our society. It's about sharing information and celebrating the great work that many individuals and organizations are doing to help make money less of a problem and more of a solution for people with mental illness.
1: I know I said one one last thing, but I promise this is one last thing. Uh, This show was inspired by the idea of red tape and giant systems like social assistance are known for red tape. All that to say, we are going to speak in general terms about social assistance, but we can't speak to anybody's specific situations.
2: We will have links on our website, www.radiototallynormaltoronto.org. That will hopefully help you if you need it. Let's get to our guests now, shall we? First off, Susan speaks with John Stapleton. John is a writer, instructor, and innovations fellow with the Metcalf Foundation. He worked for the Ontario government for 28 years in the areas of social assistance policy and operations. He has since engaged in a lot of policy advocacy and research, much of which can be found on his website, openpolicyontario.com.
0: My name is Susan. I'm a RTNT um, roving reporter and I have John Stapleton with me today. Um, A lot of people here at Progress Place live on Ontario Works and ODSP, which we know provides financial support that leaves people below the poverty line in Canada. Could you explain a bit about this?
3: Yeah, well, Ontario Works and Ontario Disability Support Plan, uh, OW and ODSP, between them, they're known as social assistance. Uh, about one in every 16 people in Ontario collect social assistance. Ontario works for a single person right now at $706 a month, and ODSP is getting up close to $1,200. Um, you know, when you look at that on a yearly basis, it's still well below any... You don't even have to say which poverty line. It's below all of them. And especially when you're in a city, then that makes it... Uh, it it's, very, it's very hard to live on it. Uh, unless you have subsidized housing. And if you do have subsidized housing, it's possible. You can live on it, but it's still a a fairly difficult life. The good part of social assistance is that it provides a floor of income that someone cannot fall below. In other words, you set in legislation, there's basic needs levels that are set for shelter and basic needs. And then if someone, if they have... um, low income, then they're going to be topped up to at least that amount.
2: I'm going to interrupt John for a moment, just to say that we agree social assistance is a good thing. It is a safety net. And if you need it, we don't want to discourage anyone from applying. But nothing is simple, as John points out.
3: The problem with it is that that floor also becomes a ceiling which you can't rise above. The thing about ODSP is that it deducts all the other forms of income from it. So if you get CPP or employment insurance or workers' compensation or other programs like that, um, ODSP deducts them dollar for dollar. Which
1: in some ways makes sense, right? ODSP is there to provide... A floor to cover basic costs. The idea being that if other income is coming in a person doesn't need as much from ODSP for those costs and we would like to clarify that income from employment is different. This is a good opportunity for ODSP myth number one. You can't work if you're on ODSP. This is not true. If a person works and makes $200 or less a month, there is no effect on ODSP benefits. After the $200, 50% of your income remains exempt and won't affect your benefits either. There is also a $500 employment and training benefit you could qualify for, as well as transitional or extended health benefits. In addition, you can and should apply for the $100 work-related benefits, which you do by submitting your pay stubs to your ODSP worker. And there are other policies within ODSP
3: that John thinks are positive as well. I'll give you one that I've been thinking about a lot these days and that is the one where, and this is just over the last 10 years or so for both ODSP and then for OW, to put in a specific amount of money, in this case $6,000 that families and friends can provide somebody in a year's time. It's good because it's specific. It's an amount that people can deal with, that they can plan for, and the people like the family and friends who do want to help with the rent or help with the whatever in terms of uh, helping somebody uh, live a better life or get some traction or maybe towards employment or a course or something like that. The specifics are there. They know how much they can give. It's not some amount that you have to get approved or something like that. You know you can give that amount and it's, um, and it's clear. And the reason that I am um, especially happy about that, that policy, is that I know when people turn 65. There's nothing like that in the old age security system. I'd say also just the earnings exemption itself, The uh, you know, for years it was much less than, than it was. The idea that you can make $200 a month free and clear and you, and you don't have to, uh, you won't lose anything off your allowance I think is... Uh, is, is a good thing. And I'd also say that, um, you know, just the drug and dental cards, um, well, I know you use your OHIP now. But I think, you know, those are fairly good, good policies that you don't have if you're a member of the working core, let's say, and you're not getting assistance. You have to go to other programs that are not as generous. So I think those are some examples of some good good policies.
1: So those policies are good news, right? And while ODSP is not indexed to inflation, which leaves it dragging behind the cost of living, there have been improvements over the years. That 6,000 exemption used to be 4,000. Which brings us to... ODSP myth number
2: two. Two,
1: If a person goes back to work and then stops working, It'll be a nightmare to get back
0: onto ODSP.
1: There is a process called rapid reinstatement that speeds up receiving benefits again. But let's put that under our hats for a moment, though, and get back to John.
0: Um, Do you have any advice for managing money on a low income?
3: Yeah, I actually do. Uh, uh, There's a lot of people who say, well... um, that if people don't have money and then trying to get them to manage it they'll say well that's like trying to learn how to sail without a boat. I'm sympathetic to that but on the other hand uh, in terms of planning there's um, especially in the work that I do in retirement planning for a low income there's ways to plan things so that you're even more destitute (laughs) And there's ways to plan things so that you're actually better off. So even if you don't have any money at all, a little knowledge is often very uh, important, like making sure that you always file a tax return, for example. A tax return is an application for benefits because the government has chosen to pay a lot of benefits through the tax system. I still meet people every day. I met them yesterday who should be filing their taxes because, and they're actually leaving benefits on the table. I mean, everybody who uh, receives, let's say, ODSP, you know, they, they have to manage their money very carefully. But there are opportunities. You know, you can earn $200 a month and none, none of that is taken back. Um, you can get help for your, from your family. You can put a little bit aside for yourself. There, there's, there's various things that you can do and I f- find that what happens with a lot of poor people, even though they don't have, and this people with disabilities, people without disabilities, um, they say, they'll say say, well, they don't have any money. But they do come into minor windfalls now and again, whether it's a bingo, whether it's a minor inheritance that comes in from a, from a relative, or it's a back pay of a program that they've been waiting to get. for, They'll come into money. And what happens when they're on social assistance? And ODSP, they'll often go on this spending spree because they're afraid of their money and they get rid of it very, very quickly because they're afraid that it's going to be deducted off their allowances. And that can be true, but it isn't always true. And if it's planned carefully and and somebody, you know, works with their worker, you can keep a lot of that money that you get in those minor things.
2: There are two things John says that have got me thinking. One, that people get scared of money when they get a little bit of it. It makes me think about how challenging change can be. Once you get used to a situation, it can be so scary to shift, even if change is a positive one, such as returning to work or earning money. Two, John suggests speaking with your worker, if you do get a bit of money, to figure out what to do with it. And that reminded me of how important it is to have a community with people who have been there and who can give you the support you need to navigate what can be a labyrinth of a system. Finding your way through the labyrinth can be intimidating, especially since when you are doing that is usually when you are the most vulnerable. But having people to reach out into those times of transition really helps. For example, if we go back and to the rapid reinstatement, it is an opportunity to be taken advantage of, but we aren't going to say there isn't any red tape involved. You should always double check if you are eligible, that can be more complicated than it sounds, so it helps to have someone supporting you. More generally, parts of navigating a giant system like ODSP can be counterintuitive. John has a great example to illustrate this.
3: I attended a lot of focus groups where just ordinary Canadians were interviewed as to what they thought were good things to do for anybody who wanted to get out of poverty. And um, the people in the room, and I was behind the glass, I got to look at them. They look like just the in, like the insides of a subway car and they're all ages and genders and races and colors and creeds and nationalities. And they'd say things like, one of the things you do to get out of poverty is you'd save some money so that you'd have a cushion. Another thing that you would do is get help from your family. And another thing that you would do, you try to get work or training. And another thing that you'd do is try to bunk in with someone else, you know, so that you get your costs down. Maybe two or three people get together so their costs go down. So these were ordinary Canadians who probably had never thought of it before, what they do to get out of poverty. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, wow, those are all things that sound really good, but a lot of those are against the social assistance rules. Because if you get some money, you've got an asset limit. You can't go above $5,000. And if you get together with somebody else and move in with them, well, they cut your allowance. And if you get more than $6,000 from your family, then they cut that off the allowance. So... All the things that ordinary Canadians and their values seem to think were good ways to get out of poverty, there was social assistance rules that actually worked against those things. And so part of stigma is when you have programs that have values that are different from what everybody thinks. And social assistance, for, for some reason, and it's very complicated, I think, especially... Uh, you know, over the decades, for the program to stay like this has created a lot of stigma. I
1: had never really thought about how conflicts in values can perpetuate stigma. It seems as though we as a society feel we should support everyone, but not too much, which is kind of a contradiction. But I think it's a really powerful point. It certainly has very practical implications. For people receiving ODSP benefits
3: that leave them below the poverty line, and then there's also the issue of having a little bit of savings, having a cushion, and you need the cushion because you know sometimes the refrigerator stops working or a stove stops working, and you have a big payment that you got to that you got to pay. So. Um, I'd like to see higher asset limits on on ODSP. I think five thousand dollars is too little. I think where people do have um, relatives and other people who do want to want to help them, I'd like to see that policy of the six thousand go up too, where someone could get to more than that. Because I've seen people, you know, who would get maybe a fairly costly course and some relatives and friends would help out with it, and then they've got right to the to the limit of that, and then if a refrigerator goes or something like that, and then they're really stuck. So it's complicated, and uh, it's, um, you know, sometimes the questions cause a lot of controversy, but at the same time, it's important to be able, not just to, have enough to get by, but also to participate in the mainstream of community life, but also at the same time have a little bit stuck away so that when when those emergencies do occur, that you're able to meet them.
1: For now, though, let's turn away from ODSP specifically and start thinking about poverty more generally.
0: What do you think the most common misconceptions are about people living in poverty?
3: Uh, I think the most common misperceptions is that um, people are often thought of as suspect because they're living in poverty. In other words, um, poverty is seen as a, um, as a personal deficit that the person has to overcome on their own. You know, to be honest with you, I often think people are, um, are stigmatized that when, they're, when they're living in poverty. And uh, we're all the same. So if you're born into a rich family, then you're not going to suffer poverty. And if you're not, and life breaks go against you in some ways because of disability, um, it came from sickness and that sort of thing, it can can hit anybody. And if it hits you at the wrong time, then you can be in poverty. So the idea that people want to be poor or want to stay in poverty, uh, I find that. I reject that. I just find it to be untrue. And... um, and it's not- not necessarily that something that they brought up upon themselves it's something that's just happened, and other people have been lucky enough to have the resources and the family and and other things that um, allow them to do better in life so it really is a, in most cases i think a situation where um um you know the breaks just didn't go your way and uh uh for example, if you have a mental illness that's that's a very important thing to overcome. But the thing about mental illness is that it's not an all-encompassing thing. I mean, you don't become mentally ill at a certain point, and then you're just ill all your life. Generally speaking, it's episodic. In most cases, people come out of it. People do um, come out of the episodes, and whether it's either naturally or through medication, people can function and they can work, but they still have that stigma of mental illness against them, and uh, And society can actually make it sup- tougher for people when when its role really should be to make it easier.
0: What are some of the consequences of living below the poverty line?
3: Well, uh, the main consequences of living below the poverty line, I- from from a health perspective, is that we know that people have more visits to emergency wards they, when they live in poverty. Um, they, they have more to do with the... Um, with, with the whole of the medical system because they can't necessarily eat properly or just live properly. And if people had enough money to be able to get good nutrition, um, they'd be, they'd be um, less sick than, than they tend to be otherwise. Um, there's also, the uh, in terms of the court system, and the, we see that people who are living in poverty who might get evicted, let's say, to be evicted and then they're going to have to use the court system for that. So you see a lot more use of public services and actually expensive public services. So there's a good case to make to say that if people were less poor um, and had more money that they'd have a less of a draw on some very expensive resources. And that's that's an important part of living uh, living in poverty. We've never really had an Ontario or a city of Toronto that's been poverty-free, so it's hard to actually say, well, what would things be like if no one was poor? Um, and we know that we don't have to spend that much more money to be, take everybody uh, out of poverty in this country, so we would have to spend about 1.5% of what's known as the gross domestic product on poverty and we could have everybody out of poverty in in Canada.
2: Could you imagine a country without poverty? That would be amazing! And there are a lot of people who are working on making this happen. Before we get to our next three guests, Here is a little public service announcement about a new album set to drop in a red tape-infested waiting room near you, created and performed by Gay Ten with additional voice work from Belk.
3: We know you've been waiting for it, and here it is. The new album Songs in the Key of Social Assistance with hits like I Just Can't Get a Job.
5: I wake up in the morning and get ready for my day, but I just can't get a job, I just can't get a job. And the Québécois classic,
3: Le Bon Citoyen. Lundi
4: matin, Le Bon Citoyen est allé au club pour avoir son chèque, mais comme j'étais pas là, Le Bon Citoyen a dit, puisque c'est comme ça, nous reviendrons
3: mardi. Or... The reggae mega-hit, Bad Bugs. Bad Bugs, Bad Bugs,
1: what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad Bugs, Bad Bugs, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you?
3: Or the very romantic, I met you in the waiting line.
4: When I met you at the office, we were both so
3: blue. Drowning in the red tape. But at least I met you. Don't miss out on this beautiful album in stores or in a waiting room near you.
1: Welcome back to Radio Totally Normal Toronto. We're talking about money and mental health. Our next guest wasn't satisfied with resolving just his own situation with ODSP. Julie speaks with Rick Miller about social assistance artist grants, and how he is trying to help others that have encountered similar red tape after being rewarded with their own artist grant.
4: Hello, I'm Julie and I'm with Radio Totally Normal Toronto. Rick, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your art practice?
5: Hi Julie, um, my name is Rick. I am a photographer and a filmmaker. I have a diagnosis of bipolar 2, which makes me a mad artist. And right now I am the media artist in residence at Workman Arts here in Toronto.
4: If you feel comfortable talking about this, what is your experience with mental illness?
5: You know, talking about mental illness, as you know, is hard, but I found that by talking it helps me deal with it. As I've, I've said in some of my work, I've lost virtually everything to mental illness. I've lost my work, I've lost my career, I've lost housing, I've lost all the money I, I've ever earned. I even very nearly lost my life. But um, art gives me something to, to focus on, something to concentrate on. And what's always been a constant is my ability to make photographs. Through my mental illness, I have been able to create art that speaks about mental illness and that helps me survive quite literally.
4: What led you to become concerned with ODSP benefits?
5: Oh my goodness, Um, two things. It used to be you had to go through a six-month process, lots of paperwork, lots of doctors every two years to prove that you were disabled. I went through that process and I was declared not disabled anymore. Went through the appeals, it took almost a year, it was horrible. So that started me on the advocacy route and I connected with a group called the ODSP Action Coalition who were working to overchange that rule. And through the ODSP Action Coalition I got involved with the self-employment program at ODSP and I also got involved with this idea of ODSP and arts grants. An arts grant is a wonderful thing. All levels of government understand that arts is an important part of society, an important part of of our communities. So they have given funding to different agencies. There's the Canada Council for the Arts, there's the Ontario Arts Council, and there's Toronto Arts Councils, and a lot of municipal councils around. They give, give, give money to artists who want to create projects that they wouldn't otherwise be able to fund themselves. So you make an application which is complex and intimidating, submit it to the Arts Council, and a group of their peers, of other artists, look at all the applications and decide what projects look interesting and what projects they can afford to fund. And then if you're lucky, you get a check in the mail and it allows artists to create their projects and get them out into the world. And that's where these new arts grants come in. The Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council, Toronto Arts Council, they've all targeted people with disabilities as being underserved. And specifically the Ontario Arts Council has got a new grant, it's about a year old now, for for deaf artists and artists with disabilities. And only deaf artists and artists with disabilities can access this grant. And it's not a whole lot of money, it's about $15,000 maximum. It's for artists who have, previous to this, not been able to get the grants. And it's making a big, big change in the community.
4: Could you describe your project to help fellow artists navigate artist grants in ODSP? What is your goal with this project?
5: Well, our goal is to simplify the process of reporting your arts grant to ODSP. Um, in the past, and, and, ha- and what has happened to me, is getting an arts grant means that you're no longer qualified to be on ODSP, but we wanted to just create a, a central source of information that tells an artist, here's what you can talk to your ODSP worker about, and here's some scenarios that will allow you to stay on ODSP and work with your arts grant. There's a couple of ways that ODSP can look at it. If it's a small arts grant, it can be looked at as what ODSP calls a voluntary payment. And that would be uh, almost the same as winning a lottery. ODSP would say nothing, congratulations, you got your grant, go go spend it. If it's a a medium-sized arts grant, you might have to go to ODSP and say, okay, I am now self-employed. ODSP would say, okay fine, tell us what your expenses are and we won't worry about those. Tell us how much money you yourself are earning from the Arts Grant. ODSP will claw back fifty percent of the money that the Arts grants is going just to the artist. The alternative is that ODSP would claw back one hundred percent. That's why we're encouraging artists to say you're now self-employed. As ODSP looks at people who are self-employed and people who are employed differently. A third way that arts that ODSP will look at it is they'll say, oh, you just got too much money, you're off ODSP. The pamphlet has some information on what to do to appeal that, how to go through the appeal process with ODSP, how to go through the appeal process with the Social Benefits Tribunal, and how to contact Legal Aid Ontario to get some help. I couldn't find out any information of what to do with my grant, how to approach ODSP. There was nothing and there was no, nobody to talk to. So. Having finally figured it out, and even talked to the Ontario Arts Council, and they weren't sure what to do, we decided that a pamphlet laying out what the best ways to deal with ODSP once you get an arts grant would help other artists. So through a number of of groups like Workman Arts, we put together this pamphlet that is going going to help artists who get an arts grant deal with ODSP. avoid getting kicked off.
4: Do you think the general public misunderstands some aspects of why people access ODSP benefits and what it is like to live on and navigate this system?
5: I think most people misunderstand why people access ODSP. (laughs) Um, They think of it as welfare. They think of it as taking money that we don't deserve. They think that we're wasting our, wasting taxpayers' money. They think that we should be uh, working on our own. They think that we should be asking family for support. They think that we should be, um, you know, getting all our food from food banks. We are on ODSP because our illness uh, doesn't allow us to work full-time. The alternative to that is homelessness. The alternative to that is profound poverty. The alternative to that is, in some cases, suicide. So ODSP provides a bare minimum of money every month, about $1,000 a month. And it's just barely enough for us to have housing, for us to have food, for us to have a little bit of security and that housing, that food, that's the one big thing that keeps us going, that helps us through our mental illnesses.
4: Okay, how do you think living on a limited income impacts your own mental health as well as your arts practice?
5: I think living on a, on a, a limited income creates anxiety. I worry constantly about losing my housing. If I were to lose ODSP, I'd lose my housing, as simple as that. Um, I worry about getting enough to eat. I worry about eating well. Do I get enough fresh, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits, which is something you don't get at the food banks? I worry about um, you know, just being able to, to, to participate in the community. You know, do I have a token so I can go out and visit some friends? I'm not able to visit my family, who none of whom live in Toronto, as often as I like because I have a limited income. And also it also it impacts my my art in in the sense that it impacts the tools that I have to use. You know, um, being a filmmaker, being a photographer, my tools are relatively expensive, and not being able to access the—I don't want the biggest, the greatest, the shiniest gear. I just want the most basic gear, which is a real struggle to have. I can't afford to get my uh, my photographs printed, you know. So I can't get an art show if I can't get my photographs printed and, and up on the wall. I can't get my um, I can't get my my uh, videos into uh, film festivals if I can't if I don't have the money to make the little application fee to get into festivals.
4: Uh, If you could
5: design the system,
4: what values would inform it and how would it work?
5: Mm, I would design a system that was based on empathy. The idea that the bureaucrats you're dealing with have some understanding of what disability is and how it affects us personally. Stop treating us like numbers, stop treating us like people who are trying to rip the government off. Treat us like individuals who have complex lives, who are part of our communities, who want to give something back, who aren't interested in just taking, but are interested in surviving and contributing back to our society.
4: Great, thank you for coming. You're very
5: welcome, thank you.
2: Thank you to Julie for bringing us that illuminating interview with Rick Miller. While editing this episode, some big news related to ODSP broke. Starting in January 2018, asset limits will jump from $5,000 to $40,000 for a single person receiving ODSP benefits. Remember when John Stapleton was talking about creating a cushion? This change would make it far easier. Exemptions for gifts are going from $6,000 to $10,000 and gifts from family and friends, like to pay first and last month's rent, will no longer be deducted from benefits. Does this represent a shift in attitude towards people receiving social assistance? Maybe. However, benefit rates themselves will only be receiving a 2% increase to match inflation. That works out to about $23 per month. Still, in the world of money and mental health, there is something else brewing called the Basic Income Pilot Project. Up next, we will speak with Joel Klassen, a community capacity builder at the Young Street Mission, as well as Bobby Giles, a community member. Bobby and Joel are part of Friends Helping People End Poverty. They have been following the development of the Basic Income Pilot Project. In a nutshell, basic income would be an alternative to our current social assistance program, and it is no longer simply theoretical in Ontario. In the days since we have recorded this interview, news has broken that the Basic Income Pilot Project will go forward in Hamilton, Lindsay, and Thunder Bay, which is very exciting. Nat, you got to speak with Bobby and Joel, right? Let's hear why people are so excited. And once again, if you have any perspectives on this project, we would love to hear them. Send us an email at rtnt at progressplace.org to get in touch.
1: My name is Nat Brettel. Um I'm a member of radio totally normal toronto
6: joel clausen from young street mission bobby giles uh progress place member and and uh, member of uh, young street mission as
3: well
1: tell us a, a little bit about yourself
6: i've just had a long time interest in working with uh with people i love working with people and i love working with people who who may be having some kind of a struggle or, or uh, um, trying to work to make things better in some way. And um, uh, recently that's been focused a lot around uh, uh, trying to work uh, to end poverty in Toronto. Um, and that just gives me, a lot, gives me a lot of energy to work with people and it gives me a lot of energy to work to try to make a better society. I like both of those things.
1: And Bobby? My interest is also to uh,
3: to basically end poverty as well. want to I uh, want to try to be helpful as best as I possibly can.
1: What do you think are the good parts of our social assistance program as it is now? And if you can think of any, are there any ways to improve it?
6: Well, I think it's it's way better to have a social assistance program than to have nothing. I mean, that's it's it's better than like if you don't have a job and you don't have any money. There's just nothing, no support. So that's good. Um, but I mean, clearly, it's just—it's not enough, right? Well, it's—it's it's for almost for most people, it's not enough. I know some people, uh, say, who are on ODSP and maybe uh, have rent geared to income, may and maybe they have CPP as well. I'm not sure in all cases, but some people seem to be able to make do. But for the mo- I think for the most part, there is just—it's not nearly enough money. And that's the biggest problem with it, and also that it um, there tends to be a stigma with it, and there's a kind of a way that. Uh, that I, I certainly hear from a lot of people when the, when they're working with people that in, this, in that context of being a recipient of OW or ODSP. There can be a lot of judgment that uh, comes people's way. If
1: you don't mind me saying this, um, my own story, I'm able to make do. Um, I get both CPP disability and ODSP and I'm, I'm doing okay. So I understand what you're saying that if you learn how to budget and you learn how to uh, deal with what you have, then you're going to be okay. You're not going to be great, but you're going to be okay. Um, Could you summarize some of the key points of, of the Basic Income Pilot
3: Project? Bobby? Okay, I was involved in a meeting for the Basic Income Pilot Project, uh, but it's being worked on in small communities to start. There was a lot of discussion amongst amongst the basic amongst basic income, but nothing was really, but nothing was really finalized. It's a, a work in the progress for the basic income pilot project, but it will have
6: happened eventually. Uh, it's based on a, a study or a, 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 a paper, a report written by Hugh Siegel, and so he does make a number of recommendations in that. that I, I, they seem to be saying they're going to follow them, so they might be worth repeating. Um, although, like Bobby says, there's nothing for sure yet. But they do seem to be interested in this idea of like there's a low-income measure which is around, I believe, for a single person in Toronto, about $20,000 a year. And that they would be, uh, uh, for a person who's on OW now, uh, if they're in this project, it's just for a very small number of people. So that's what a pilot project is. It's not for ev- not for the whole population. So uh, they're just going to test it out and see how, see if it works, or how well it works, how it works. So for that small number of people that would be eligible for it, It would uh, it would be about seventy five percent of that low income measure, and that would work out to about I believe sixteen hundred ish or so per month, and then the idea is that if you're on ODSP now, then you wouldn't get ODSP anymore, uh, but you'd get the sixteen hundred plus five, so the five hundred and. I've heard some feedback on that from different people. You know, your disability could mean that you need a lot more than five or maybe less than five. But anyway, the current idea, it seems, is to give 500 extra just as a blanket amount for people that are on ODSP. So that would be 2,100 a month. And uh, again, in the Hugh Siegel's report, and I haven't heard anything different, but there's nothing official. There, there would be no loss of benefits. So that would be... Uh, solid, so you wouldn't have to worry about you know, having to cover for different costs that you wouldn't have to cover now. Um, and there would be the ability to keep uh, income from work, and they would try different levels of that. But I, don't, I haven't seen anything that's referred to uh, keeping less than 50%. Um, they would be doing it for three years, um, and as I think everybody knows, there's an election between now and the end of that three years. So hopefully, who, who, like, if it's the liberals or some other party that's in power, if this does go through, they would allow it to continue on, just so that at least those those experiences could be gathered. But I guess there's no way that it would be a guarantee either. So that's the some of the basics. There's a lot of concern about what it would actually look like in in the end. Um, so uh, just to if people are interested in it, I mean, I think it, it is, it's getting a lot of interest. The, there was a consultation by the province on it. They got a lot of responses. Um, so uh, just uh, encourage people to look at it and look at it with a critical viewpoint. Is, is this, what, are, what are the good parts of it and what are the parts that we really need to make sure uh, take into account the needs of, of people who, who have that lived experience of poverty?
1: Um, could you give your personal perspective about the project?
6: To me, one of the basic um, indicators of what to me is a good society is one that takes into account the needs of absolutely everyone. So, uh, as I was saying, I don't think that our current income support systems do that and that this could be demonstrated to take care of or respond to people's needs in a much more thoroughgoing way. I think that would be a good thing. That's, that's to me the test of it. Um, and uh, in a, not just materially, but just in terms of respecting people's dignity, and it does have that at least that potential because there's no need then to, to ask for money; it would just be there. At the same time, I, you know, things can look like good ideas, and it's the it's the, you got to look at the details, right? So, uh, so what would this ultimately look like? Would it for sure uh, cover people's needs in terms of benefits and so on? Uh, how much could they keep of their earned income? I'm not exactly clear, it's not clear to me exactly what the ultimate costs would be in terms of a government budget, but if it would be a little bit higher, would governments speak for that? And, and I guess in that context, I think that's part of what people can do, is to, is to come together and speak out and say, these, these, if, they, if it does look like it's a good idea, like a good system, to advocate for it and to uh, ensure that it is a, a strong uh, system that does respond to people's needs. There, there's good reasons to do this that that would uh, be good for everybody. It's not just going to help the people that receive that money, it will help everybody. Um, and there's even good business reasons too because when if people uh, have more money to spend people who are on low incomes that money all goes back into the economy and gets circulated and gets moved around to everybody in society it's not money that's gonna sit uh, in a bank account or sit you know overseas somewhere another piece about basic income i think that's important to to um, keep in mind is that as people have more income to be able to respond to their basic needs uh, it's one of the basic things that determines health. Like there's this thing that they talk about, like what, what, how do we improve our health overall for our society? Yeah, going to doctors can be a good thing, that can help, but really the stuff that really moves improvements in health will be uh, a better income so people can just take care of their own needs on their own. Um, so to me, that's if we can improve our society's health, let's do it. I
1: thank Bobby and Joel for taking the time to speak with us. We will be following the Basic Income pilot project as it moves forward. The Young Street Mission has a huge number of services, including housing, education, counselling, and so many more. Check out www.ysm.ca to learn more.
2: Thank you for tuning in to Radio Totally Normal Toronto today. And thank you to all of our guests and contributors. Check out www.radiototallynormaltoronto.org for links to all the organizations we spoke about, or to get in touch and share your story. You can also find us on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for Radio Totally Normal Toronto. Once again, thank you for joining us.